this book is full of my demons. So in a way, this book is like, you know, me admitting my own monstrousness and just hanging it out there for the world. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with writer Sean Hamill about his existential horror novel, A Cosmology of Monsters. The book, it sort of gradually peels back layers, starting from a relatively recognizable world and and gradually peeling back the layers of existence until you see this very grand, scary thing behind all of it. Author Sean Hamill and a whole slew of monsters on Arts and Letters. From the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and welcome to Arts and Letters, a program providing opportunities for the celebration of the arts and humanities. Today, we'll be talking with writer Sean Hamill about his Lovecraftian horror novel, a Cosmology of Monsters, published by Pantheon Press. Before Margaret could ask what was wrong, a figure stepped into the doorway behind them and stopped any further intelligent thought. Tall and hunched, wrapped in a crimson cloak, the figure had a long, furry face and a snout full of giant fangs. Instead of hands, it had paws with long, curved claws. Its eyes glowed a bright orange. The creature pointed at Margaret with one talon and bellowed an inhuman animal noise. Cosmology of Monsters examines the internal and external threats in the origins of family and the monsters that threaten to break apart their very existence. Illness, secrets, money troubles, loss. This also goes back to why I was putting the monster in the earlier sections of the book. This idea that this monster isn't tied to just one character in the book, that it's sort of this hereditary thing that's being passed down. Enter the Turner family. Margaret, Harry, Noah, Eunice, and Sydney. At core, this is a story about a family that doesn't know how to talk to each other. And a slew of monsters, seemingly real and metaphorical, trustworthy or horrifying, on Arts and Letters. Sean Hamill, author of A Cosmology of Monsters. Welcome to Arts and Letters. 
Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Much of this book takes place in Arkansas. Why did you decide to situate it in Searcy and then kind of have an Arkansas feel to it? I guess the reason was I sort of wanted to pay tribute to my parents' courtship, which doesn't look exactly like the courtship of the two characters in the book. But both my parents went to Harding University, you know, which is in Searcy, and that's where they met and fell in love and got married. And my sister even went to Harding for her undergraduate work. And I really wanted to, I guess, capture that flavor of them telling me the stories about what it was like for them being in college and falling in love in this very specific era. You know, they were at Harding a little later than the characters in the book are. My parents met in the 70s and the characters in the book meet in the 60s, but I still wanted to capture that shifting culture outside of that conservative Christian environment and get that flavor and also what that romance felt like. I have to start at the outermost edges of the shadow over my family, with my mother, tall, fair-skinned, and red-headed Margaret Byrne, in the fall of 1968. You know me better than that. I had a chance at a safe, successful life, and I choose you. I wanted the adventure. All right, so why don't you tell us just a little bit about Margaret and Harry's meeting? So Margaret, when we meet her, is at a crossroads in her life. She's grown up upper middle class or lower upper class. Her father is a buyer for Dillard's department store. He's very high up in the ranks. He actually goes to New York on trips and everything. So she's never wanted for anything. There's always been money, cars, whatever she needed. And when we meet her, her father has left that very safe and affluent position to open a store of his own, and it's not going well. And Basically, she's been told, we don't have enough money to pay for you to stay in the dorms. We don't have enough money for you to keep your car. We can pay for one more year of school, and that's it. And so Margaret, she's got some gumption to her. So she finds a place to stay, and she gets a job in a bookstore off campus in town. And actually, her landlady is the woman who runs the bookstore. So she, she's trying. But the problem is that in order to make enough money to afford everything, she's having to work so much that her grades are suffering. So she's in a really impossible spot. And while she's working in the bookstore, there's this young man who keeps coming in and never buying anything. She crossed her arms and glared at him. The sun came through the window behind her and her shadow stretched forward down the aisle, shading him. Hi, Margaret, he said. He smiled at her. I've been meaning to ask, do you have anything by Philip Roth? When she didn't return the smile, he said, What's the matter? Can you read? She said. Do you understand the words on the pages you're turning? Or do you just sit here because you want to look smart for passersby? I can read. Then why don't you? Why don't I what? She tore the please don't read the book sign from the shelf over his head and tried to pitch it at him. The flimsy paper fluttered through the air between them like a fallen leaf, making its lackadaisical way to the floor. Harry watched it land before looking back at her. Why don't I what? Why don't you? You. You read it. You bought it. Get up. She grabbed him by the shoulder. Get up. Perhaps surprised by the force of her anger, Harry did as commanded and allowed Margaret to march him to Mrs. Johnson at the front counter, book still open in his hands. Harry's ready to check out now. She pushed him toward the register. He gave her a plaintive look but put the book on the counter. 
It was a big, glossy hardcover, something you might find on someone's coffee table. Mrs. Johnson took the book and checked the price on the front flap. Are you sure, Harry? He grunted an affirmative. <sighs> Mrs. Johnson rang up the total. He grimaced when she read it off, but pulled out his faded, cracked wallet and paid. Mrs. Johnson put the book in a bag for him. Thanks. He mumbled his thanks and left. She watched him go before speaking to Margaret. What was that about? Nothing. Actually nothing? Or you don't want to talk about it? Nothing. Take your pick, Mrs. Johnson. Watch your tongue, young lady. Margaret returned to work stocking the shelves. As her shift wore on, her anger ebbed away until it disappeared altogether and left her mystified by the strength and force of her outburst. Certain details kept presenting themselves to her, things she'd never noticed about Harry before. The ragged sleeve on his button-down shirt, the fabric rough from too many washings, the faded knees of his jeans, some vague, greasy smell she couldn't place, inescapable when in his proximity. By the time her shift ended that evening, she felt a dull shame which only intensified when she found Harry waiting in the parking lot. He sat cross-legged on the hood of an old beat-up Chevy, hands in his lap. She almost never saw cars that old on campus. Maybe he was a scholarship kid? Or, like her, trying to work his way through school? Face hot, she forced herself to approach. That was an expensive book. You can return it. If you have the receipt, you can get cash. He made a face. I couldn't do that to Mrs. Johnson. She's always nice to me. Can I pay you back? She dug for her wallet in her purse. He moved his head from side to side as though arguing with himself. I was gonna go to the movies tonight. I guess if you really want to set things right, you could buy the tickets. You want me to go to the movies with you? I'll drive. You pony up for admission. What do you want to see? Rosemary's Baby just opened in Little Rock. I, I like it because the introduction to their date is she feels terrible because she's forced him to buy this very expensive book and she realizes that, you know, he doesn't have very much money at all. And so she wants to make it up to him, even though she has a chemistry test the next day. Out of the ashes grows this relationship, and she sort of can't get him out of her head after this. She finds him compelling. She finds him interesting. You know, he takes her to this horror movie. He doesn't try to make a pass at her during the movie. You know, he actually watches the movie. And then against her better judgment, she finds him interesting. After the movie, instead of going straight back home, you know, she asks him, if he wants to get something to eat. So they go get burgers at McDonald's and start talking about Lovecraft. And then he lends her a book. And finally, when he drops her off at the end of the night, he kisses her and um, she stays up all night reading this Lovecraft book. You're listening to Arts and Letters. We're talking with Sean Hamill about his book, A Cosmology of Monsters. We'll be back in a minute. Let's return to our conversation with author Sean Hamill about his book, A Cosmology of Monsters. A great evil, once safely contained, is now loose. Loose. It roams freely, regardless of walls, doors. Loose. No matter what you see or hear, try not to make too much noise. Loose. 
sound will attract the creature. Tell us a little bit about Harry. He's absolutely infatuated with horror. In fact, at one point, she says, you know, do you read anything else? Yeah, he says it's the most important fiction in the world or something like that. Yeah. So he loves, in particular, Lovecraft, but he's also quite a collector of horror. Yeah, so Harry uh, Turner is actually a townie. He lives in town. His father died in Korea, and his mother is a paranoid schizophrenic, so he has a deferment. So even though he's not in school, he's not in Vietnam either because he has to take care of his mother. And so he's grown up essentially in a household where he's had to take care of this very mentally ill parent. And, I mean, he loves his mother very much, but for him, life has been sort of a horror story. And so for him, horror fiction provides a service in as much as when you experience a horror story, be it a, a comic book, short story, movie, novel, whatever, and it works, you get to face the darkest, scariest things, the things you're most terrified of. You get to look them in the face and then put the book down or walk out of the theater and life goes on. You've survived the encounter. And so for Harry, that's an incredibly hopeful thing for somebody who's had a life without a lot of hope, this idea of just being able to keep going. And Lovecraft in particular appeals to Harry because Lovecraft was a cosmic nihilist. He believed that humanity was an insignificant accident in a vast, uncaring cosmos, and that if we really knew how pointless we were, we would all go crazy. So for Harry, I think horror actually is something that provides a beacon of hope. It doesn't try to tell you that there's an inherent good and bad in the universe or greater forces, or if there are greater forces, that there may be not good ones. On their second date, Harry persuades her to go to a haunted house, and it's a great date. In a lot of ways, it's a bit of a juvenile date. He takes her out of Circe, and then they go toward Little Rock. So they, they come toward Little Rock. Would you just mind reading a little bit, and we'll talk about the haunted house metaphor throughout this. On their second date, Harry took Margaret out of Circe again and followed all the signs for Little Rock. Once in the city, he pulled a scrap of paper from his shirt pocket and read from it as he navigated the downtown area. They entered a run-down residential neighborhood lined with old houses in various states of decomposition. Broken windows, sunken porches, dangling rain gutters. They'd probably been beautiful once, but Margaret wondered who could live here anymore. They stopped at the corner of one of these streets in the shadow of a turreted two-story house with a sign planted in the yard. Spooky house. A line of people started at the base of the porch and stretched down the sidewalk. What is this place? In 1968, a year before the Haunted Mansion opened at Disneyland, and well before the proliferation of copycat attractions around the country, Harry didn't have the easily understood cultural shorthand Haunted House available to him, and had to reach for the closest available equivalent. It's supposed to be like a fun house at a carnival, or a ghost train ride, he said as he circled the block and hunted for a parking spot. But it's a real house, so this is actually what it would be like to go into a haunted place. He leaned past her, opened the glove compartment, and removed a folded up newspaper. Margaret caught a headline, local boy missing, before he flipped it over and handed it to her and pointed to a small ad in one corner. 
Margaret angled the paper so she could read by the streetlight as he backed into an open spot across the street from the attraction. The ad was a small square of black featuring a generic cartoonish ghost with bold white print beneath. Come to Spooky House and experience a true life nightmare. This sounds like fun to you? If you don't want to go, that's okay. We can see a movie or I can take you home. She heard the strain in his voice. He wanted this bad, but also wanted to be a good sport. No, let's do it. How often do I get to live out a true life nightmare? There you go. And of course, the book, she lives out a true life nightmare. (laughs) Yes, she does, that poor woman. This is your typical spooky house, and they're playing off of television tropes. A group of four teenagers came in after them, two couples giggling and leaning into one another, their energy palpable and reassuring. Harry and Margaret moved aside to let the kids take the lead. They followed them down the hall, which opened on the right side into the living room. Four people sat on a severe, uncomfortable-looking couch wearing weird, but not exactly scary, costumes. They appeared to be family, the father dressed in a suit and sporting a black, thick mustache. The mother with long, straight black hair and a tight, form-fitting gown. A chubby boy in a striped t-shirt with a chili bowl haircut. And a little girl in a black dress, dark hair braided on either side of her grumpy, dour little face. They stared at a television screen covered in static. This is the Adams Family, of course, and it was a comic television show in some ways about misfits. But in so many ways, this is a little like the family they become. Not the (laughs) stereotype of it, but the messed up version of things not being quite right. You know, it's one of those happy um, subconscious accidents. It wasn't something I was especially thinking of whenever I was first composing it. I wanted the date to sort of start badly and take a weird sort of um, almost psychedelic turn once they hit a certain point in the haunted house, but actually it ends up sort of being prophetic right from the get-go. It's just the tone of the prophecy darkens as it goes on in a way. So you start with sort of this silly, very bad parody of the Adams family downstairs, and, you know, in a way it's them looking at their future and... Then they go upstairs and things kind of take a turn up there. So this is one of the adolescent kids and they're all standing upstairs. The haunted house has taken a little bit of a different turn. It's a quieter and more introspective room. And you're playing with that notion of we expect one thing and we get another, but in your case, we expect one thing, get another, but we get something completely different. The tall boy stood unmoving, blanket in hand, gazing down. Margaret still couldn't see what he was looking at. What is it? Harry said. He let go of Margaret and stepped forward for a better look. The tall boy dropped the blanket and picked the lump up off the bed. He turned around and held it so everyone could see that it was a pillow with a childish drawing of Dracula on it. The girls laughed and Harry returned to Margaret's side. This place is officially the pits. Want to leave? Yes, please. 
They exited the room, leaving the teenagers alone. When they returned to the potted plant on the second floor landing, though, they found the way down blocked by a sliding metal gate. I didn't notice that on the way up. He tugged on it. It rattled a little, but didn't budge. Let me see. He began fiddling with the gate. Margaret looked back toward the pink room and realized the house had grown quiet again. What were the kids doing in there? She strained to hear, listened for the telltale noises of necking. She concentrated so hard on her eavesdropping that she didn't notice the potted plant moving until it had her in its grasp. <gasps> she screamed. In her terror, she twisted back and forth, trying to tear free, and the plant, perhaps surprised by her alarm, let her go all at once. She pitched forward into Harry, and he crashed into the gate. They both bounced off and hit the hardwood floor. Margaret shoved herself up off Harry, tried to stand, tangled her legs in his, and went down again. Her head smacked against the floor, and pain flashed white behind her eyelids. She blinked a few times, trying to focus, aware in some distant way of her body moving through space, hands on her arms, pulling her to her feet. Come on, Harry said. His hand closed over hers, and he dragged her to a newly opened door at the end of the hall, away from the pink room, the plant, the stairs, and the gate. This room was bare, lit by a single bulb, and had a black hole where the window ought to have been. Harry let her go, walked to the black hole, and looked inside. He looked back at her, mouth open, eyes suddenly far away and blank. Before Margaret could ask what was wrong, a figure stepped into the doorway behind them and stopped any further intelligent thoughts. Tall and hunched, wrapped in a crimson cloak, the figure had a long, furry face and a snout full of giant fangs. Instead of hands, it had paws with long, curved claws. Its eyes glowed a bright orange. The creature pointed at Margaret with one talon and bellowed an inhuman animal noise. Life feels like a long, twisting rope. Life feels like... Often in horror, we keep the monster off stage for a really long time. But I'm just interested in why you introduced this facsimile of the monster so detailed. You know, it has the orange eyes, it has the curved claws, it has the paws at this point. Well, in the early drafts of the book, the monster didn't physically appear until much later in the story. And I felt like Tonally, it was putting off some agents, some editors, and some early readers because the book, it sort of gradually peels back layers, starting from a relatively recognizable world and gradually peeling back the layers of existence until you see this very grand, scary thing behind all of it. And 
I waited a long time to start pulling those layers back earlier in the writing process. And what I realized was that I wasn't hinting enough early enough to what the bigger answers of the book's questions were. And I wanted to make sure that I was tying Margaret and the monster and the family together. Um, But I wanted the reader to get a good look at it beforehand so that whenever it shows up again later in the book, they know what they're looking at. They recognize it. It's been there following them all along. Exactly. We'll just read a little bit of this section, if you don't mind. They're talking about Harry's mother, and you write, he points to his mother. She's a good person. It's not her fault she's this way. Of course not, Margaret says. She wants to touch him, comfort him, but she's afraid of being bitten by the little monsters. I'm not like her. I'm not sick that way. I know. After they go visit his mother on her birthday and they're driving home, he has a seizure in the car while he's driving. And then whenever he comes to, he doesn't know where he is. And they take him to a hospital and they leave him overnight for observation. He, you know, sends Margaret home with the kids, you know, insisting they shouldn't have to spend the night in a hospital. And when she comes to pick him up, the next day, all he tells her is that they want him to see a specialist and that he's got a card and, you know, that they're not quite sure what it is and they didn't want to make any premature diagnoses. But the truth is he already knows what's happening. Right. Um, and he has about a year to live at most. Exactly. He's got a brain tumor. Yeah. Glioblastoma. Glioblastoma is a tumor that arises from astrocytes. Those are star-shaped cells that make up the supportive tissue of the brain, the glue that holds everything together. It's a highly malignant tumor. What does malignant mean? Life-threatening. Very dangerous. It's a highly malignant tumor because the cells reproduce quickly. They're supported by a large network of blood vessels. There are two types of glioblastoma. There's primary, or de novo, which forms and makes its presence known very quickly. Then there's secondary, which has a slower, longer growth period, but is still very aggressive. Which type does Daddy have? Primary. So he decides that he is going to make a haunted house. This is his swan song. It's the thing he can control in the universe. I'm building a haunted house for Halloween, he said. Although Halloween was Harry's favorite holiday, and he always celebrated with the girls, as far as Margaret knew, he'd never gone to another haunted house since their trip to Spooky House in 1968. To say Margaret was surprised by the proclamation would be an understatement. A haunted house. Margaret associated haunted houses with that wolf-like creature she'd seen right at the end of Spooky House, the one with orange eyes and a red cloak that had pointed at her as though singling her out right before Harry tossed her down the slide. A haunted house. So tell me, how does building a haunted house in the yard change anything? I'm not sure. 
but it feels important. Like, if I do it, I'll understand the next thing. And he realizes he doesn't have a lot of time, but he's not sure how the haunted house will change anything. But in a sense, he's preparing them for their future. Yeah, without even meaning to or knowing necessarily that he's doing it, he has this instinct that he's following that ends up kind of creating an opportunity that bails them out when they need it the most. So he's ultimately preparing them for life without him. At this point in the book, they're rebuilding, literally and metaphorically. Margaret finds she's pregnant again. He's building this house or designing this house absolutely obsessively. You know, it's this man on a mission. He's got to get this thing done, and he's got to make it for his family. And there's a larger reason for it, which he can't understand, but it's also something he needs to do for himself. The haunted house is relatively successful for the family, and the father, he begins to deteriorate. But what he decides to do or believes he is doing is making plans for a whole world, a city, a haunted house that is its own city. And he's drawing these with Margaret while they're in the hospital room. The kids don't understand exactly what he's doing. That's that's really... Uh, sad. That obsessiveness sort of being the the thing that he can sort of lean on at the end of his life. There's that thing, you know, about how people tend to pass on not long after they retire because they don't have something to do anymore. So having a mission, a drive can kind of keep you going longer. I thought that was important, but also this idea that he is sick. He is not entirely well and he doesn't quite understand why he's doing the things he's doing, but he feels pushed to do them. It's almost like through the illness, something deep down is urging him forward because it's somehow going to help in a way that he doesn't understand. Sydney visits them seldom. She wants to be with Daddy. She's always enjoyed being alone with him, getting him all to herself. But for some reason, even when it's just the two of them in a room together lately, she feels another presence, something she can't see watching them both. As if this creepy feeling weren't enough, the last few days have been bad. Although Daddy was writing and drawing a lot, he no longer has the strength. He stares into space, his breath ragged, and Sidney stands beside him and holds his hand. He doesn't seem aware of her, seems trapped in his own mind, alone with himself. But then his hand suddenly tightens on hers. He takes a sharp breath as though experiencing some great pain. He turns to look at her, his eyes aware and present and terrified. Eunice was right. Daddy? It's the only answer she can scrape together under the sharp focus of his gaze, harsher than any spotlight. Margaret? Sydney. It's Sydney, Daddy. The drawings, the designs, it's all there. All there. You have to... Have to what? It's seen us. It has our scent. Daddy closes his eyes. His breathing is deep and untroubled. Daddy? She calls to him a few more times. Daddy? Before she notices that his chest has stopped moving altogether. Daddy? So, as you said, kind of the monster was inhabiting the father in a sense, 
but it's also this peripheral creature and it has their scent and you end it there with with the funeral in that section that's pretty intense Sean yes yes (laughs) just saying like you think it can't get much worse and it does does. (laughs) you're listening to Arts and Letters we're talking with writer Sean Hamill about his book A Cosmology of Monsters we'll be back in a minute Let's return to our conversation with writer Sean Hamill about his book, A Cosmology of Monsters. After the father dies, they're in pretty bad shape and they move into a very small apartment. They lose pretty much everything and Margaret is very unwilling to entertain ideas that are right in front of her about how they might transcend their circumstances. And so Sydney, who's quite the performer and school plays, comes up with the idea that they should build a haunted house for a living and that people would really come, primarily because of some of the success of the haunted house she remembers that her father built, but also just the idea that his legacy can kind of live on. And that's really important to Sydney. She's there at the end when he dies. Yeah, Sydney definitely feels like she has to do something for her father. I think that since he was trying to talk to her about these designs he was making and all of that, that somehow by building a haunted house, she's doing what he wants, even if she doesn't quite understand it, but she's already made it her mission to carry out his final wishes and has been trying to do it for years and just being perpetually frustrated by Margaret. But now she's almost an adult by the time we catch up to her in section three and is starting to gather her own strength as a person, you know, her own charisma, her own beauty, and, you know, is a fairly charismatic performer and so is able to draw people into her orbit to ally with her, essentially, against her mother in this, you know, like, let's make a haunted house business. Let's talk a little bit about Noah. He is just born, or not long after, and his father dies. He looks a lot like his father. And then we move to this uh, section, the thing on the doorstop. And the book really takes an odd turn here, to my mind, and by odd I mean, it turns on the notion of friendship. What is friendship? How does friendship operate? Because Noah's pretty lonely. Yeah, yeah. Noah um, is an outsider in his own family, and they sometimes instinctively but sometimes deliberately exclude him from what's going on because he's much younger than the other two girls. He's six years younger than Eunice, who's the next oldest, and so he's the only one who hasn't kind of been there for everything we've seen so far. So that makes him particularly open or vulnerable, if you prefer, to anyone who's willing to pay attention to him. When the scratching at the window started, instead of fear, I felt a hard ball of anger in my stomach. I climbed out of bed and yanked aside one of the curtains. The anger dissipated at once, replaced by wonder. 
My first impression was of dark stone blocking my view of the atrium. Tall and monolithic, but roiling dark on dark like flirting clouds of smoke. Enter this monster that we have seen before again. I leaned forward trying to gauge the object's size and it moved, its top sweeping down. A face drew level with mine, elongated and furry. Its snout pressed to the glass and exhaling blasts of fog. Its eyes were bright orange. I started to flinch back, but then realized that I was only doing it because I was supposed to. It's what people on TV and in movies did when they saw a monster. I wasn't actually afraid. I wanted to see this thing. The creature kept still as though understanding and obeying my desire. I let my gaze linger on its tufts of brown fur, orange eyes and protruding snout, its talons on the glass, its garment like a living shadow, shrinking and bending from the light, sometimes black, sometimes red. I put a hand to the cool glass and spread my fingers. The creature tilted its head to one side, then mimicked my movement, placing its long taloned paw opposite mine. It looked at our hands, then back at me. I couldn't shake an impression of a dog and laughed a little. <laughs> the creature exhaled hard, fogging the glass. Startled, I stepped back. A dog, maybe, but dogs could still bite. I shifted to look through unfogged glass. The creature had also drawn back into its cloak, so only its snout remained visible. It peeked at me from inside, an orange gleam in its eye sockets. There's been this scratching at Noah's bedroom window that he's hearing every night that's sort of been frightening him, and he's been clothespinning his curtains shut because whatever it is he doesn't want to see, and he's not telling anybody about it because he's afraid they won't believe him. I leaned forward, held up one finger. Wait a minute. Do you understand... The creature held up one digit, then nodded slowly as though trying out the gesture for the first time. I moved my finger to my lips to signal for quiet. Again, it mirrored me. I let the curtain drop and cross the room to my toy box. I opened the front panel as quietly as I could and thrust my arm through all the sharp plastic edges to the very bottom where I'd hidden the Batman action figure. Next, I grabbed my Kermit the Frog flashlight off my nightstand. I unlatched and opened the window wide enough for me to wriggle through. I stood on the concrete of the atrium, barefoot. The creature kept its distance. Extended to its full height, it looked at least seven feet tall, most of its considerable length obscured by the amorphous cloak. I turned on the flashlight to get a better look, but the creature held up its claws and looked away. You don't like that, 
It shook its head. No. I'm sorry, I said and switched it off. The creature faced me again, its breath heavy and wet. I grew uncomfortable beneath the bright, unwavering gaze. I wasn't used to being so visible or noticed. I held up the Batman toy. Did you bring this? I said. It nodded. Why? The creature crouched and picked up a chunk of sidewalk chalk. It made several slow, unsteady scratches on the ground. I shone my light on the space and read a single word written in jagged, barely legible letters. Friend. Friend? You want to be friends? The creature nodded. Why? It made no response. I held up Batman again. You didn't steal this, did you? The creature shook its head no. Behind the creature, the living room light came on. Had someone heard us? The creature cringed without turning around as though even this veiled illumination hurt. I have to go now. Bye. The family's in dire financial straits and Noah's going through an obsession with Batman. It's the fall of 1989, so the Tim Burton, Michael Keaton Batman is all the rage and Noah is just the perfect age for it. And a couple of nights ago, someone or something left this little Batman action figure on the atrium outside his window, this toy that he really wanted and almost stole from another house but didn't, and one he knows his mother can't afford. I turned to my open window and crouched to crawl back inside. One of the creature's claws landed on my shoulder. I had the sensation of drifting the way you do in the moments before sleep, everything around me soft comfortable like a blanket. I bumped my head against the window and found myself back in the atrium squatting outside my window with a monster's paw on my shoulder. I shrugged it off, embarrassed as though I'd been caught naked. What do you want? The creature scratched out another message with sidewalk chalk and I shone my light on the ground to read it. Inside? If it had made the request before it touched me, I probably would have acquiesced. But now, waking from the sweet fog, I declined. I might get in trouble. And then, after a second's internal debate, I added, You can come back tomorrow if you want. It didn't try to stop me as I wriggled back into my room, but stared as the glass slid closed between us. Good night. I whispered, putting my hand to the window. The creature, my monster, my friend, Friend. put its paw opposite mine and scratched the glass, whining just a little. So I have some antipathy about this monster. It's not a monster. You call it a creature, which I think is very important. You don't call it a monster. It's soft. It's comfortable. It's warm. It, he needs a friend. He has no friends in this book early on. Nothing. You don't know if it's an imaginary friend at this point. You don't know if it's real. You sense it is because its presence has been there before. Um, I will say, though, the moment that he wanted to come inside, that's the horror film moment where you're like, no, absolutely don't let let him come inside. But the inside is metaphorical, too. He wants to infiltrate this world to the degree you can kind of help us with this creature because um, they are friends at first. Without giving too much of the plot away, This creature, like every other character in the book, is complex. It has 
characteristics that are both noble and terrible. It's carrying its own secrets, but it's also capable of love and friendship. And even though it's not being completely honest with Noah, a lot of the time, nobody in this book is being completely honest with anybody else. So in a way, it is the characters in the book. It just happens to have a more directly monstrous outward appearance. But it can be fearsome, but it can also be gentle. It can be kind. It can be warm. You mentioned that word warmth pops up again and again because Noah lives in a pretty cold household. And so this is an easy decision for him to make to get close to this thing because it's there for him like a dog or a giant teddy bear, but as strong as your mom or dad, you know, it can protect him. It pays attention to him. It's interested in doing what he wants to do. And he also knows more than it does or seems to anyway. You know, he teaches it things like basic drawings and stuff, but then it quickly starts to reveal that maybe it's got some hidden depths as well. Yes, it becomes jealous. It becomes hurt. It leaves for periods of time because Noah's hurt his feelings. And Yes, and they grow very close, you know, and it's a friendship that blossoms over decades and becomes the central relationship of Noah's life. Um, and, you know, it's ambiguous and something I'd leave up to the reader whether or not that's a good or a bad thing or whether it's both. That anytime you invite anybody into your life, you are inviting in their baggage, their problems, their monsters. Mm -hmm. You just don't know what they are at first. And that's what, and friendship, that's what friendship is, right? Friendship is yeah. inviting the problems of others into your life and caring about them. Exactly. And, and knowing that they're going to care about yours in return. Okay, and the last thing we'll talk about are just these found notes that Eunice leaves for Noah around the house. It harkens back to the first sentence of the book. I started collecting my older sister Eunice's suicide notes when I was seven years old. I still keep them all in my bottom desk drawer held together with a black binder clip. They were among the only things I was allowed to bring with me, and I've read through them often the last few months, searching for comfort, wisdom, or even just a hint that I've made the right choices for all of us. Um, Noah collects these suicide notes. He doesn't know they're suicide notes at the time. It's just heartbreaking in some ways, you know, that he's, he's kept these notes. She writes them to him. And he's the teller of this tale, but she's the chronicler of events. Yeah. yeah, it's her insights that sort of shape his worldview. And so he's reaching for what she's already done by telling this story in his own way. Dear Noah, today I was in my geology lab staring out the window and I started thinking about all the layers of the earth and how as we dig, drill, what have you, we pull up all these things that are new to us but are actually ancient. I wonder if human beings aren't the same. Like every tick of personality, every talent or shortcoming is already in place, waiting to be discovered. My love of writing, for example, did that already exist as soon as I was born? Or did it take shape after dad bought my first computer? 
I like to think that it was already there and dad was just smart enough to know where to dig. Of course, not all prospectors are so kind. Most people in your life are digging at you for things they want. Attention, a smile, permission to change lanes on the highway. They're hunting for things to take, not give. When this occurred to me, I started feeling low. How long until the world hollows me out? I know I haven't been at my best for the past few years. I've gone to my doctors and taken my Paxil like a good girl. And for the most part, I'm able to get out of bed and function every day. But I feel less me, Noah. I don't get as sad as I used to, but I never really feel happy either. Maybe I'm already hollowed out. Yours, albeit numbly, Eunice. I'm just interested in this idea of trying to understand our deepest, darkest selves through writing. Because to me, it seemed like Eunice was the stand-in in this book for the writer. Yeah, in a lot of ways she is. Um, as far as like anxieties and, um, you know, identity issues, I think I'm much more in line with Noah, but in terms of what writing is and what it can do, Eunice is definitely my voice. You know, some of the things that she writes in this book are things that I'd written years ago hmm. um, in diaries or journals or online blogs that hopefully, God willing, no longer exist. <laughs> Dear Noah, love is ridiculous, right? A chemical imbalance, an illness? We catch it, we go mad for a little while, and what do we do when it passes? If we're lucky, we're saddled with an imperfect marriage, a mortgage, and obnoxious, needy, resentful kids. Our ambitions and dreams and potential greatness are extinguished for want of a little human contact. And yet, 99% of all music, literature, film, and art is devoted to love. The world carries on like this is the best, most natural thing. We sing endless songs about getting sick and the complex of scars left when the illness fades. But you know what's worse than catching love? Having the object of your illness not return the feeling. Hearing them say, no thank you, when you declare yourself. Worst of all is knowing deep down that she doesn't really feel that way will let some creeps scare her into saying it anyway. Why do the creeps of the world have so much power? I don't know. So Sean, just as a final question, in writing this and in working through kind of this family's secrets and lies and living nightmares, what did you come to learn about writing and yourself? I learned that I guess I have to be fearless. I have to be willing to put everything out there uh, as far as how I'm feeling, what I'm thinking, what I'm afraid of, what I'm interested in, that trying to do things the way I've seen other people do it or trying to stand by the rules of a genre, whether it's literary fiction or straight horror, is never going to work for me. That the only way I'm ever going to write anything that's worth a damn is to 
followed that instinct and do the uncomfortable thing. This book is full of my demons. So in a way, this book is like, you know, me admitting my own monstrousness and just hanging it out there for the world. Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, you've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Leave us a comment there and let us know what you've thought about the program. Thank you to songwriter Michael Shackelford of Future Elevators for the songs. Thank you to Chris Long and V. Wurgis of Monster Boy Lives for the soundscapes and the amazing songs. Thank you to actors Adam Simon, Jenny Mitchell, Sherry Simon, Paige Wells, Arden Jones, Remy Miller, and Henry Vandiver as Noah. Thank you to Adam Simon of Simon Sound for helping to mix and for mastering the episode. Generous funding for Arts and Letters was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you to writer Sean Hamill for a whole slew of monsters, real, metaphorical, and cosmological. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. Let's heed these words from H.P. Lovecraft, from even the greatest of horrors, irony is seldom absent. Arts and Letters is a production of Living the Dream Media.